Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. So, Kellen, the topic of today's episode is one that we have planned on doing for quite a while, and it feels like there's no better time than now to do this because of a lot of the events that have been happening in the U.S. currently in this regard. And that is the role that firearms play into everything that we've been discussing thus far in the podcast. You know, right now we've got this recent string of high-profile mass shootings from, you know, the parlors in Atlanta to the grocery stores in Colorado. We've got President Biden and his executive orders on gun control. And also right now we're in the middle of this extremely high-profile case that's being tried right now of Derek Chauvin on the murder of George Floyd, which while he was not murdered with a gun, much of the violence that's been sparked from that murder has involved firearms. For example, Kyle Rittenhouse. And it's especially interesting right now because as this trial is going to be coming to a close in the next couple of weeks, obviously based on the results of this trial, we may see rather a rapid uptick in violence again, depending on what that outcome is. You know, I feel like there is so much to talk about here. And initially, somebody might ask, how does this relate to collapse? But it's one of these issues that has the potential to not only spark a lot of conflict, but also to cause any conflict that's happening to become more severe and more intense and to escalate more quickly. You know, firearms are very culturally significant in the United States. Any shift or movement in policy is extremely controversial and bumps up the tension. And we've talked about so many things coming down the road that will likely cause tensions to increase and people to become more polarized. And so I feel like it's extremely important for us to have a deep understanding of this issue. You know, it makes me think of an article that I read just a couple days ago, actually, where the writer talked about what keeps him up at night regarding the future, uh, especially around climate change. And for him, he said it was tipping points and how things can escalate very quickly with feedback loops. 
But what the article was, was him asking a bunch of climate scientists, what was it that kept them up at night? And he was surprised that the most common answer from those scientists was the question around how humans will react to the outcomes of climate change. Scientists were most worried about how individuals, societies, and politicians would behave once things started to escalate. And I think that's extremely relevant to this conversation, because like you said, there's already this feeling of sort of an underlying tension in the United States. And it really does feel like we're a powder keg that could explode and that the overwhelming number of firearms in the country increases the potential for deadly violence in that scenario. With that in mind, it's probably important for us to discuss just how many firearms there are in the United States. But first, I just want to mention that this is an extremely touchy topic. We're talking about violence and death and all of the suffering associated with that. And when it comes to how people feel about firearms, there is extreme polarization. I've talked to individuals personally who feel like it is the single most important freedom that they have. Like, you take away any other freedom outlined in the Constitution, okay, but if you come for my guns, like, it'll have to be over my dead body that you confiscate them. Yeah, I've had the exact same experience. Close friends of mine, people who I highly admire and respect, who have said the same thing. And I think it's important to point out that while we're going to be talking about firearms and the damage that firearms have done, are currently doing, and will continue to do, we also want to mention that we're not against guns or the Second Amendment. You know, I've mentioned before that I own guns, and I do feel that it's a very important part of the Constitution. I feel like it is a right to own weapons, but I'm also not against common sense gun laws. I think in a lot of things, people can be very extreme. And this is one of those that I don't feel that you have to either be for guns or against guns, and that's it. I also feel that a lot of, and we'll talk about this in the episode, but a lot of the contention around gun laws is that people feel that those are the only options, that either all guns are going to be taken away and my freedoms are going to be removed, or on the other side, I can own absolutely whatever I want, do whatever I want with it. And I think it's important to admit that there is a middle ground that's in everyone's best interest. Yeah, and we'll talk about where some of the different opinions come from and the valid points that are made by each side. But first, it's important to know the current state, at least in the U.S., by every estimate, it has way more firearms, way more people that own firearms per capita than any other country in the world. In 2019, there were approximately 98,460,000 gun owners. 30% of U.S. adults say they personally own a gun. And an even higher percentage, 43%, report living in a gun household. And by the way, that's not evenly spread. You know, in some states, it's down around 14 or 15 percent of adults that own a gun. In Montana, which is the highest ranking state, 66.3 percent of adults live in homes with guns. In Wyoming, Alaska, Idaho, West Virginia, Arkansas, Mississippi, Alabama, South Dakota, North Dakota, those are some of the states that rank highest in gun ownership. Yeah, one stat I found that was interesting is that the U.S. holds nearly half of all global civilian firearms. So we're only 5% of the global population, and yet we own 50% of civilian guns. That's crazy to me. You know, at 400 million guns, but with a population of just 330 million, there's 25% more guns than there are people. 
2020 was the highest year in volume for gun sales, and it was 40% higher than the year before it, 2019. So 40 million guns were sold in the U.S. in 2020. And just in January of 2021, over 4 million guns were sold. And so this year is already slated to probably even beat 2020 in the number of guns sold. 5 million of those 40 million guns sold in 2020 were to first-time gun buyers. So a significant portion of people are going out and purchasing firearms for the first time. It was also a record year for the number of people of color and women that bought guns for the first time as well. Yeah, and as we throw out all these numbers and statistics, it's honestly amazing to me how much information is readily accessible about guns and gun ownership. You know, we've talked about a lot of important topics, and yet some things around climate change you have to kind of search for in order to find. But in doing the research for this topic, it's just a firehose of information. With that, I did notice that there's some conflicting information, and I think part of that is because it's changing so much. You know, some of the numbers that I have are from recent years, 2018, 2019, but you mentioned just how drastically things changed in 2020. But at least from within the last few years, here's some of the demographics. 48% of white men own a gun. Well, only 24% of non-white men own guns. And again, that might have changed somewhat in 2020, but that might be a surprise to some. What's probably not surprising is that 41% of gun owners are Republicans, 16% of gun owners are Democrats, and 36% are independents. You know, the biggest percentage live in rural areas. You get 19% of gun owners that live in urban areas, 28% in suburban areas. And I think all of that just paints a picture for how gun-heavy of a nation we are. And understanding the general demographics of who gun owners are, I think will help provide context when we talk about some of the issues and conflict associated with this topic. So reading off the numbers like this, you know, it can make it sound like, you know, especially if you're not from America, you might get this picture of like everybody walking around with a rifle and everyone's got guns on their hips and they're pulling them out. You know, it's not like that. The vast majority of gun owners are responsible gun owners who, number one, don't use their weapons for any form of violence. You know, there's a lot of hunting that goes on. You know, they're kept in the home for self-defense. And so it's not like all 400 million of those guns are being used for violent purposes. But that being said, it really only takes a small percentage of those weapons being used for the wrong purposes, or potentially for the wrong purposes, to cause a serious amount of trouble. When it comes to homicides, guns account for 73% of all homicides in the U.S., whereas in other countries, Canada, for example, it's just 39% of homicides are from guns, and in England and Wales, it's just 3%. So the murders that are happening in the U.S. are significantly more likely to happen from firearms. When it comes to the numbers of deaths from firearms, those numbers are also climbing very quickly. So in 2020, for example, in the U.S., nearly 20,000 people were killed in homicides involving guns. That's more than any year in at least the last 20 years. The few years prior to that, from 2016 to 2019, averaged just over 15,000 murders per year. And as recently as 2014, it was as low as around 12,000. So that's a nearly 60% increase in gun homicides in just the last six years. And in addition to those 20,000 homicides, there was 24,000 suicides by gun in 2020. So in total, you know, we're talking around 44,000 gun deaths, which, by the way, happens to actually be more deaths than caused by car accidents in the U.S. in 2020. 
And it's strange because this is just a side note, but in 2020, there was actually an 8% increase in car accident deaths, even though there was so much less driving due to the pandemic. So even with the increased car accident deaths, we're still killing more people with guns. This might be a good point for me to jump in and mention, I've heard people say more people are killed by knives than by guns in the U.S. And as I try to dig into it, from what I can see, all credible sources point to that being absolutely false. However, there are some really kind of shocking article headlines that will say FBI states more people murdered by knives than by rifles, which makes people think, yeah, more people are killed by knives than by guns. When in reality, most of those are handguns. And so it's just an example of the way that with all these different agendas, people kind of cherry pick the information that they want to, to paint the picture that they want to. A big argument against gun control laws is, well, hey, this thing kills more people than guns. So why aren't we banning that thing? Why isn't our focus there? And I think there's some validity to that point. We'll talk more about that later. But as you hear this information that we're citing, and as you see any information out there, it's always worthwhile to dig a little bit deeper, check the sources, and confirm the information. Yeah, on that note, anti-gun control lobbyists are always outspending pro-gun control lobbyists. So the majority of the advertising, the majority of the articles that you're going to see and read are going to be against gun control. In some years, like 2016, for example, the spending on anti-gun control causes was several times the amount that was spent to advocate for gun control. So going back to some of the numbers that you stated, the majority of gun deaths were suicides. And in previous conversations that we've had, we've discussed the toll that modern life is having on mental health. When things get challenging, oftentimes suicide attempts increase. You know, we anticipate things will continue to get more and more challenging. I'll mention that an extended family member of mine recently died by suicide, and the method of choice was a gun. To me, it is so tragic. It's a reminder here, you know, we talk about depressing topics, but we've also talked a bit about coping and the upside to some elements of collapse. And for anyone listening, I hope these conversations serve as a resource to become more prepared and to live better in the moment, but not to despair. It also brings up the point that whether it's homicide or suicide, you know, it's said over and over again, guns don't kill people, people kill people. And to me, regardless of what's done to restrict or prohibit the ownership or the use of guns, I think it's clear that in the U.S. that there needs to be a lot more done to improve the mental health of Americans. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, care for mental health is one of those things that is part of infrastructure. And I think, unfortunately, we're not seeing it being a priority. You know, there's still a lot of stigma and taboo around mental health, and especially around mental health in men. A lot of men do not want to get help for mental health issues. And most of the suicides that happen are by men. Another way that we see mental health issues playing into gun violence is through mass shootings. You know, mass shootings have been really high profile. They've been in the news a lot lately. And so it might seem like, especially to an outsider looking in, that, again, everyday life in the U.S. is hoping you don't get shot when you go to the grocery store, which is not the case. But mass shootings do seem to be happening more and more frequently. And it seems like many of them are not talked about. 
When we talk about mass shootings, it's really important to note that there's not one universal way in which we define a mass shooting. So for example, different statistics will gauge it differently based on how many people died, or if they count injuries or not, or if it happened on public property or on private property, was it gang-related or a domestic abuse? Do we include the shooter in the numbers? So there's a whole lot of things that go into it. For the cases of the stats that we're going to use here, we're going to define a mass shooting as at least four people shot including the suspect, whether or not they were killed, and no matter whether it was private or public. So with those parameters, 2020 saw a total of 614 mass shootings with 446 deaths and 2,515 injuries. And that was 180 more mass shootings than in 2019. So a couple of things to note. Number one, that's a lot. That's almost an average of two mass shootings per day in the U.S. But on the flip side of that, while of course 446 deaths is too many, it is a lot of deaths, compared to the total number of homicides from guns, it's a relatively small percentage. There were 20,000 homicides and only 446 came from mass shootings. An interesting thing to note is that in 2021, currently, so as of today, the 8th of April, when we're recording this episode, we're currently at 167 deaths from mass shootings, which means we're trending towards 618 deaths. So if we continue how we have so far in the year through the rest of the year, it would be 618 deaths, which is a 28% increase over last year. By this time last year, there were 113 deaths. So we're at 166 now, which means so far we've had 32% more deaths this year than last year from mass shootings. And most of the high-profile mass shootings that we hear about are in public places like a grocery store or a movie theater or an elementary school where the suspect opens fire seemingly on random bystanders. But I do think it is important to note that while those are the most high-profile, they're not anywhere near the most common. I think most of what those shootings are are coming from gang-related activities, drive-by shootings, and domestic issues. But no matter why these things are happening, it is disturbing to me to see the upward trend of how easy it is for people to draw their weapons and fire on people. I mean, you think about it, the 20,000 homicides by guns in the U.S., something like 600 of those were from mass shootings. So we're still talking around somewhere like 19,500 people in the year 2020 that were willing to load their weapons, draw those weapons, and fire them on people. And in 2021, it will likely be close to the same, if not more, of those types of incidents happening. And with that many people being willing to use their weapons now in a time of relative economic stability and food security compared to what we might see in the future, it is pretty terrifying to think about the fact that there are 400 million guns that could potentially be used in the same way in the future. As you share some of those facts and figures around mass shootings, it brings me back to the point that so much of this is fueled by fear and racial tensions and what feels like a gradually increasing general social and political tension. So we're seeing all these crazy numbers and these increases around mass shootings and around gun homicides. You know, we discussed suicides. But one of the things that you mentioned a big increase around was just people purchasing guns. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts as to why. Why in 2020 would suddenly there be so many more people running to the store to buy guns? Yeah, I think there are several factors that play into it. First of all, it's normal for gun purchases to increase before and after elections, especially elections in which Democrats are elected. You can look back historically, 2008, 2012, 2016, there's always that ramp up of gun purchases. 
2020 is different, though. If you look at a chart, uh, it's much more elevated and it's much more sustained. The amount of time before the election and now the amount of time after the election that people are continuing to buy guns every month has stayed really high. And I think that plays into several things. So, you know, in 2020, we saw several instances of police brutality against black men and women. You know, we talked earlier about George Floyd, there's Breonna Taylor, Elijah McClain, and those sparked a pretty intense protest movement throughout the summer. We talked a couple episodes ago about the impact in Minneapolis from the protests over George Floyd. And while those were sparked initially because of the racial injustice and police brutality, we watched as they kind of morphed through the summer into these protests and clashes between Trump supporters and anything and everything in between to the point of violence. And that led to Kyle Rittenhouse crossing state lines at the age of 17 with an AR-15 going into Kenosha, Wisconsin, where he ended up in one of these clashes, one of these protests, killing two people and injuring one. He says that he did it in self-defense. He went there to help protect private property. And this wasn't the only instance over the summer of deaths occurring from protests and riots in these clashes. And I remember watching these things taking place and thinking, at what point does this hit a tipping point where it's just normal? And are we already there? For me, those things had a huge impact. For other people who either weren't that interested in hearing about this stuff or who were already desensitized to it, maybe it's already become too normal. We mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that right now is the trial of Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd. The nation is watching. You know, I have been sort of glued to the trial, watching the witnesses and their testimonies and the line of defense that's trying to be used to acquit Chauvin. And it's just so interesting to me because, and this is just a side note, but to me, I feel like it should seem like a pretty obvious outcome. I don't know how you can watch that video, watch this trial and not come to the conclusion that at the very least, Derek Chauvin was to blame for his death. But at the same time, I have this feeling, this pit in my stomach saying, he's going to get acquitted. And we don't know. There's no way to know. And the way that the American justice system works is a whole other ballgame. It's something I don't know a ton about. But it's interesting to me that in this case, one of the jurors is all that it takes to say that there was reasonable doubt and Derek Chauvin will not be convicted. And again, just the sort of fears that I have of potential for unrest this summer based on not just this trial and its outcome, but on all the other tensions that we have boiling beneath the surface in the U.S. is one big reason that I think people are arming up. So a few of the other reasons that people are buying guns right now, a lot more people are, are just at home more often. Because of the pandemic, people are working from home, they're leaving less often, they felt the need to protect their home more. There's been increases in stimulus money. People who maybe wouldn't have had the options to buy guns before just got a $1,200 check. And so it's more feasible for them to be able to do so. We've currently got this crisis at the border, which, again, is one of those things that is real. It is happening. Like, there is a surge of people at the border. Even a lot of people want to make it sound like that's just Republican fear-mongering. It is true. There are more people at the border. There are more children in cages than there were several months ago. It doesn't mean they're more violent. It doesn't mean that they're doing harm to people. But that fear in people is real, and so they have been arming up in response to that. And then lastly, there is, of course, this fear of gun control and the fact that Joe Biden is now president. Kamala Harris is his vice president, and people are afraid that they are going to enact severe gun control. And so therefore, they need to hurry and buy all the weapons now before there are restrictions. 
So I think that's a good segue into talking about what those proposed restrictions are and what the different opinions are. You know, whether you see this gun issue as the spark that could ignite conflict or whether you see it as the wood, right, the fuel that accelerates the conflict or keeps the conflict burning when it's sparked by something else, this clearly plays a major role in the concerns we have around collapse. So I personally think there are really good arguments on both sides. And so my approach here isn't to take one side or another, but just to share what I've seen as I researched what people are saying about it. You know, those who are opposed to gun ownership or are advocating for any sort of restrictions, it's really easy for them to point to the numbers that we talked about before. There are a lot of deaths caused by guns, both homicides and suicides. And if you look at the gun violence, right, not only deaths, but all sorts of gun violence that takes place in the U.S. and you compare it to what happens in other developed countries, the U.S. is so far ahead. And then on top of that, you get what you've talked about with these mass shootings, and it makes a really good argument for our safety as Americans, that there should be some sort of restrictions. On the other hand, some of the arguments I hear for why there should be no restrictions, you know, one of those is just that guns don't kill people. That guns are already out there. It's a people issue, not so much an issue of gun ownership. And then you'll hear, you know, people who oppose that argument saying, if people are the problem, why would you give the problem guns? But there's what we've talked about before, which is, hey, this other cause of death results in way more deaths than guns. Why aren't we focusing on that? Right? Are you really going to ban this or that? I had the opportunity to talk to somebody who I know who is a military veteran, and I asked his opinion on it. And he said some things around, you know, the the bad guys are going to have the guns. If there are restrictions put in place, all that's going to do is limit good people from being able to defend themselves. Those that want to get guns illegally or through back channels are going to be able to do so. A big fear is around the government and needing to defend against the government. There are a lot of ways in which the government over decades has resulted in a loss of trust among the American people. We talked about that before. Most people don't trust the government. And so, you know, I might say, as things get crazier or whatever happens, if the government comes to take away any of my rights, I have a basic human right to be able to defend myself. So those aren't all the arguments, but it's interesting to hear people's opinions. And then when you stack those up against some of the facts... A lot of people will say, I need to get a gun in case an intruder comes into my home so that I can defend myself or my family or my property. But as it turns out, almost all homicides are from a relative. It's almost always, you know, a love affair or some sort of a domestic dispute. In other cases, it's something like a drug deal. But in only 4% of the cases is a homicide the result of an intruder. The research actually points to having a gun in the home increasing the risk of homicide for those very reasons. When it comes to suicides, there are a couple of arguments there. People will point to some of the research out there that indicates that many suicides are an impulsive decision. Most people don't think, yeah, I want to take my life, so I'm going to go through the process of buying a gun. In most cases, that decision is made in a very short period of time, and those individuals already have access to a gun. So banning gun sales to try and prevent suicides might not be the solution. It might have more to do with education, you know, parents making sure guns are safely secured at home. It might have more to do with mental health resources. There's a big shortage right now of mental health resources. If somebody wants to get into a therapist, usually they have to book it out several weeks in advance unless they're already a current patient of that therapist. 
So you've got these really strong opinions on both sides. People saying, in order for me to be safe, there should not be restrictions on gun ownership or gun purchases. And on the other side, people are saying, in order for me to be safe, there should be those restrictions. You know, just today, the president of the United States announced some restrictions on guns, you know, trying to ban ghost guns, which is basically guns that can be purchased in multiple pieces and then assembled without a serial number to track it. The other was around stabilizing braces for pistols, basically trying to make them less deadly. But I listened to that speech from the president and heard some other things that he was proposing that are more extreme. Some of those were around these red flag laws where police or whoever get to say this person is a danger to themselves or to others, and so we're going to temporarily take away their guns. There's the idea of background checks or having some sort of qualification to be allowed to be a gun owner. And while in some ways those sound really good, I can also see the concern that, and that's pretty scary, who gets to decide if I'm a dangerous individual and come in and confiscate my guns? So anyways, with that little bit of overview of the issues and the opinions, I'm curious to hear from you, Corey, either where you anticipate this going or how you see this issue coming into play if and when tensions rise. Well, I certainly can't say what's going to happen, right? But I do think that it's fairly obvious that there is a growing number of people in the U.S. who are putting an increasing amount of pressure on Democratic presidents to enact more strict gun control laws. And as we're seeing more and more violence from guns, it's becoming something that those Democratic presidents are finding it harder to back away from. Like you said, it is a little bit scary to think about who gets to decide that I'm a dangerous individual to myself or to others. You know, that seems like a law that could be used to take weapons away from whoever the government deems is their enemy, right? Which does go against the whole idea of the Second Amendment in the first place. And so I can see that as these types of things are even just being talked about now, but especially as they become enacted in the future, that those who hold the Second Amendment as a very high priority and very important will react in violent ways, for sure. I don't think the people are kidding who say, if someone comes for my guns, they will do it over my dead body. And a large sweeping measure of gun control in a nation that's already racked by political tension, I think, would be enough to create a political divide that we couldn't come back from. You know, you mix in the conspiracy theories and what I feel is a tendency to over-exaggerate on the fringes of both the left and the right. And I could see even common sense gun control laws causing a severe reaction from some of those fringe groups. So you're talking about some of the negative reaction that could take place if gun control laws were enacted. What if the government were to just do nothing and nothing changed with gun control laws? Do you see that as a more peaceful outcome? No, not necessarily and not at all because people will continue to accumulate firearms. You know, if we're buying guns at a rate of 40 million per year, the number of guns in the U.S. will double just in the next decade. And with tensions rising, you know, you look back on 2020 and none of the talking points were around gun control. And yet it still felt like if the fuse was lit, it could have exploded. There are too many tension points, I feel like, between left and right, between minorities and those oppressing them, between classes, the wealthy and the poor. And as the inequality gap continues to grow, there's simply, in my mind, too much potential for conflict for those weapons to not be used in the future. Now, I'm not saying it's going to be a civil war, but civil unrest, surely. Things like we saw last summer with large groups of people protesting, counter-protesting, and eventually somebody pulling out the guns and there being an exchange of gunfire. 
I like to believe that most people are in the same mindset that I am, that I will use a weapon to defend myself on my property in my home if I need to. I have it securely locked away so that no one can access it but me, and that there's no thought in my mind of ever using it for any other purpose besides that. But I feel like we see far too often talk online of civil wars, of desire for conflict. You know, last year, I don't know if you heard about this, Kellen, there was a cop, a police officer that was overheard talking to another officer about his desire for a civil war and how he was going out to buy more weapons to prepare for it. He was talking derogatively about minorities, and he was overheard by an auditor having these conversations. And it just strikes me that, yes, this guy was caught talking about that, but how many aren't? And not just police officers, but everyone. And that's terrifying. On that note, I think I'll just mention briefly, quickly, the role that police and police brutality does play into this equation. You know, there were only 18 days in 2020 that police didn't kill someone. There were over 1,100 people that were killed by police last year. And there's a lot of conversation right now around demilitarizing the police. In 2020, it was really high around defunding the police. Most, if not all of the protests, you could see ACAB spray painted on buildings everywhere. There's a lot of anti-police sentiment. And this is, again, one of those things where I feel like people tend to go to an extreme, right? You either completely 100% back and support the police and all of their actions, or on the other side, you're ACAB, you hate every cop, you think they're all corrupt and bad. And again, I feel like there is a happy medium to be able to say, yes, there is a lot of police departments that are corrupt. There are a lot of police officers that are in it for the wrong reasons, that are doing bad things, that corruption is rampant. But at the same time, realizing that there are likely many good officers who are in there for the right reasons trying to do the right things and recognizing that for the most part, unless you are an anarchist who believes we absolutely do not need anyone from the state enforcing rules, you know, murderers should be apprehended. Rapists should be apprehended. Police are necessary. But again, the tension and this rising distrust of the police who are the enforcers of the law creates an environment where unrest and conflict have a much higher potential of becoming very violent. Yeah, I'm glad you bring up those points. I tend to believe that most cops are good. Most gun owners are good people. I don't think either of us are claiming that we're right on the brink of a huge percentage of Americans all starting to shoot each other. But as people do shift towards seeing the government as less legitimate and as tensions rise, as fears, racism, conspiracy theories, all of those things are on the incline. I think the issues that we've discussed around guns are extremely important to understand. And I feel like we've only scratched the surface. There's so much more that we could talk about, about all the different opinions, about all the different factors, about the way guns have evolved and how lethal they are compared to what they were when the Second Amendment was introduced to the Constitution. There's so much that we could talk about. But I'm just really grateful that we chose to cover this topic today because it's very relevant to what's going on right now. It plays a big factor in my understanding of collapse. And I always feel more at peace when I'm more informed about what's really going on. Agreed. And like we've said many times in the podcast, we are not here to prescribe, to submit solutions, to tell people what they should do. It's more about disseminating the information and allowing people to take that information, build on it, and then decide for themselves what is best for them and their family moving forward. Preparing for what you feel like your situation is and potential outcomes for yourself in the future as we continue through collapse. Thanks, Kellen. We'll talk more next week.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.